regarding of uh, one of the books that uh, my guest for this hour has written, one of many, many books, he said that when Jesus sent 70 disciples on ahead of him, part of their mission was to heal the sick. In fact, they were supposed to heal the sick before they preached the gospel. As Mike Aquilina, the author of this book, he calls his command the healing imperative. And it's part of a book that he's written, The Healing Imperative, The Early Church and the Invention of Medicine as We Know It, that reconstructs the history of the unique Christian institution of the hospital. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about the church in Africa. We're going to talk about the Venerable Bede. But above all, it's just going to be fun to spend an hour with Mike Aquilina. Mike, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Matthew. (laughs) Always. Uh, Our conversations, especially on the air, are always too rare, so this is a a great chance just to catch up. For those uh, in the audience who may not be that familiar with you, and I find that impossible to believe, you are the author of, I love how the the bios always say several books about the early church. That really doesn't do justice. How many books have you written at this point? I I don't know. Uh, Something something on the order of 75. Okay, so you have uh, eclipsed me. I'm at 55 and sort of stuck there, so we'll have to do something about that. But... (laughs) <laughs> Most recently, I know how the fathers read the Bible, Scripture, liturgy, and the early church. And But I want to talk to you about two in particular uh, in this hour. Uh, the first, of course, as I mentioned, the healing imperative, and then also the new book on the, the church in Africa. And then if we have any time left, we can talk about Venerable Bede, because it, it is his feast day. It but is. there's something to me very fascinating uh, about... The church's response from almost the, from the very beginning to Roman imperial pagan culture, I, I go back to the fact that the, the Romans would go out into the gardens of Rome in particular, uh, searching at night for the infants that had been left to die uh, by the choice of the patriarchalias, the, the, the patriarch of the family or the, the Roman system that had no use for infants that were considered unimportant or somehow defective. And they would gather them up and they would raise them as their own. That that little thing of that gathering up was something that really struck me as a, a young man when I was first coming to grips uh, with Roman history, but also the impact of Christianity on it, that the pagan world had not really seen or knew nothing like that, did it? No, 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 and uh, it, it, you know, I think I think it's when you look into it, uh, it makes sense that they thought Christianity was a threat. Uh, one of my favorite books of all time is um, is Robert Louis Wilkins' "The Christians as the Romans Saw Them." Yes, and because I think it's a gift to be able to see see Christianity as it appeared on the world scene for the first time and understand why it was persecuted. Because Christianity was a real threat to the social order, it was a real threat to the traditional family, it was a real threat to long-established customs, because the world was debauched. The, you know, the world, the world had customs like infanticide and abortion that Christianity just flatly opposed. So it was seen as a threat. Um, gradually, over centuries, three centuries, Christianity changed that world into something different. Now, it didn't, it didn't produce a perfect world right away, but it produced something much better. And it introduced some great institutions, as you point out, like the hospital, like you know, eventually the university and, and, uh, and, and free public education. Eventually those things all came into the world by way of Christianity. But, but also some, some seed ideas that had never been in the world before, 
and had um and and eventually you know would would become uh, you know part of our civilization uh, our favorite parts of our civilization really that we and we take them for granted today it, you know you think about uh the idea of human dignity the idea of human equality of universal human rights uh the idea of women's rights children's rights all of these things were novelties introduced into the civilization civilization civilizational bloodstream by Christianity, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is today this um, sense, this uh, image that is often projected of uh, pagan the pagan world. The, let's just say the world before the Christians ruined everything, is, is how <laughs> one person actually wrote it. Oh my. What was pagan civilization really like for the average person? Uh, who grew sick, who grew infirm, or who needed help, somebody who was vulnerable in that civilization. You know, a, a more accurate uh, vision of that world is, is given in a recent history by Tom Holland, and it's called, um, it's called Dominion, and it's uh, an intellectual history of the West, and, uh, and he presents that world, the pre-Christian world, as a very cruel world where, um, where the, 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 the people who were strong and rich triumphed and and prevailed over the vast majority of people who were poor. Uh, there wasn't really much that you'd call a middle class in that world, although some people were favored by the rich, and so they 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 had a little bit more on their table. Um, but it but it was a world where where uh, my goodness, where to begin? Uh, where where women were treated very badly, where women were were considered objects, were considered playthings and uh and where you could murder or rape a slave at will and uh and 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 not be punished for it there was no law against it so um it, it was a world that was casually cruel and uh and of course the cruelty manifested in some bigger ways too in the wars that were waged at that time uh and in the way the way um the way cities were managed uh but but Christianity really did change that, and for the first time, and this this is bizarre to think of, but for the first time in in history, you have laws against the murder and rape of slaves. That's right. Slavery itself was one of the great institutions, and I, by great I mean horrifying institutions of the pagan world. But it, it was taken for granted. It was right. everywhere. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Now, for those who grew sick. Uh, what recourse did they have? Where could they go for medical care? Well, there were lots of people who called themselves uh, uh, Medici, who called themselves doctors, right? They, they were out there and they were practicing a kind of medicine, lots of different kinds of medicine out there, all right? And there was nobody to regulate it. Uh, but usually, uh, whatever skills you had, whatever medical skills you had, were just your, they belonged to your family, and so they were passed down from father to son, generation to generation, and they were kept as family secrets. So it's not as if you discovered a cure for something you would tell the world, right? Uh, what, what happened was you, your discoveries were kept within your family. Uh, there were all these wandering Medici out there, and they would, um, they would, they would wander from place to place. They would wander from, um, from uh, 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 city to city, uh, usually outrunning their last failure, I suspect. Um, <laughs> right. But they they would go they would go about like this. They would compete with each other, and uh, and they would uh, 
they, they would do 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 their do their thing uh, as it were. Uh, but but they, they they you had to pay for this, all right, and very few people could afford it. Uh, because, as I said, there were the very rich, and there were the very poor, and there weren't too many in between. Uh, the, so, so what what would happen? There was no, there was nothing like a hospital. There was nothing like a hospital in the ancient world. Uh, the, the institution just did not exist. There there was uh, in the in the Roman period there there was something called the Valetudinarium, mm-hmm. which is a strange institution. It was a repair shop for slaves and soldiers. Now, when you think about it, why, why do you have repair shops for slaves and soldiers? Well, they represented a big investment on the part of people. If your slave broke his leg, well, you wanted to make sure it healed right so he would be productive for many more years because you had invested in this slave. So slaves and soldiers had something like a hospital at their disposal, but no one else did. Medical care was what was given to you inside your family. If you could afford it, you'd bring in one of these wandering doctors who could be practicing anything, any kind of quackery. Um, you know, you just don't know because the, the, it was all secret. It was kept within the family. Yeah, now the mention is made of uh, the Insula Tiberina, uh, the, mm-hmm. that island uh, in the middle of the Tiber uh, yeah. in, in the middle of Rome. And uh, the fact that this – it is often cited that this was um, an island that was connected somehow with uh, healing and medical care, largely because yeah. of the presence of the temple of uh, Esculapius or the Esculapius, mm-hmm. the, the Greek god of medicine and healing. What was the, the real story of this, uh, this supposed hospital? Well, mostly it was a place to drop off your slaves when they were no longer useful, right? <laughs> right. I, I mean, you, you didn't want to keep on feeding them after they were no longer uh, doing productive work for you. So you could drop them off there, and they'd get some measure of care there at the temple until they died, and it probably wouldn't take long. Um, but, but really, the temples of, of, of Asclepius, they, they, um, uh, they weren't hospitals as we know it today. What would happen is you would be brought to the temple, you would make your sacrifice, you would be given time alone in a room, and, uh, and, and you were to sleep in the room. You were to, to, to go to sleep, and you were to report whatever dreams you had, and then one of the priests of Asclepius would, would interpret the dream for you and tell you what the dream meant for, your future, for the future care of your body. Right? Mm-hmm. Well... I mean, some people, I'm sure, benefited from that, just from the diversion of it, from going someplace, actually resting, and from talking to someone. These are all salutary things. And so I'm sure that it was, it was useful for some people. It was not medical care, as we know it today, and it was very brief. You know, what we think of as medical care today is, um, is the tr- treatment provided by professionals over an extended period of time. You could go into the hospital, you could be in the hospital for a week, you're getting medical care from professionals, and it's constant. That was not what the temples of Asclepius were about. You know, they were about uh, this religious rite where you, you made your sacrifice and you, you communed with the God who would give you something in your dreams, theoretically. Right. So suddenly uh, we have this Christian presence. And I know in, in this particular case, uh, the, the sanctuary was eventually replaced by the Christians I know. Uh, the, the sanctuary, mm-hmm. I think, was by tradition dedicated by Bartholomew, wasn't it? Uh, it, uh, it, may, it may have been. I don't yeah. know. Uh, yeah. Well, let's pick that up on the other side of the break. Uh, my guest this hour, Mike Aquilina, we're talking about the impact of Christianity on the ancient world. We're going to talk about the church in Africa, and if we have time, the Venerable Bede. 
This is Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Matthew Bunsen filling in for Al. Don't go anywhere. We have a lot more to talk about. To Chris in the afternoon, I'm Matthew Bunsen filling in for Al today, continuing my conversation with uh, Mike Aquilina, a prolific, prolific author and uh, one of my dearest friends. Mike, uh, when we left off, we were discussing uh, the uniqueness of Christianity within this pagan establishment, pagan civilization, and, and we were talking in particular about uh, the Temple of Esculapius or Esclepius in the middle of the Tiber and how how very different the Christian approach to the human person was compared to what you were apt to receive when you were ill or vulnerable in a pagan life? Mm-hmm. Well, there was, no, um, there was no, no possibility of profit in medicine unless you were keeping your secrets to yourself, unless you were uh, getting, getting customers for the family business and, and, uh, and keeping customers. So there was, it, it was very much a private enter- enterprise, and it was a very free enterprise because... Uh, because, as I said before, there was no regulation on it. You could be practicing some kind of magic. You could be practicing some kind of herbal medicine. Uh, you could be practicing some kind of um, some kind of Hi- Hippocratic medicine, or what they called empirical medicine at the time. Uh, so there was a, a wide variety of practices that fell under, under this umbrella. Uh, and but the the main reason you did this was not for the care of the other, but because it was the family business. It was the way you put food on the table, and you wanted to get ahead. You wanted you wanted even to get rich doing this if you could. Uh, <laughs> right. Christians were not doing, doing it for that reason. They were doing it because to treat another person was to treat Christ. To care for another person was to care for Christ. Our Lord had said as much himself. And then the apostles, in, in, their, in their missionary activity, they showed uh, that they, they always began with healing. St. Paul uh, conducted great healings wherever he went. St. Peter did, too. And, uh, and so this was a way to make the gospel credible and a way to show that the apostles, to the extent that God enabled them, would do what Jesus did in the world, that Jesus would transform the world by continuing uh, his, his healing ministry. And, and so very early on in church history, we find that um, there are many doctors among the Christian population. Uh, that's a very interesting thing that comes out in the, in the histories of the time. Uh, there, there are people who trace down uh, as much as we can learn about every name of every person in antiquity, every person who's, who shows up on the documentary record. And um, what, what they found is that the vast majority of the Christians we know about we're, we're, we're doctors. I shouldn't say the majority of the Christians we know about, but the largest cohort of any profession we know about, we're, we're, you know, is made up of doctors. Uh, and that, you know, we don't know what that means. It could mean that Christianity was very attractive to people who were already practicing medicine because it showed them an even nobler divine sense of their of their profession and it made it a vocation from god or it could be that christians wanted to follow in the footsteps of jesus and the apostles and participate in their healing ministry of course both could be true too yeah. but what we know is that many christians practice the medical profession uh from very early on and well, um, we think and, of uh, the two names that jumped to mind immediately cosmos and damien 
Uh, right, right, right. Uh, so many of the saints we honor who are there on the on on the calendar as uh, as kind of frontline saints. You know, they're not the <laughs> optional memorials uh, because they were practicing medicine. They did not take payment, and uh, and and they were they were venerated for this reason among others. You know, uh, they showed their heroic virtue in their, their in their profession. An interesting ha- thing happened um, about the middle of the third century, and Christians had become quite numerous at that time, and uh, and that worried uh, the the Roman government, and and Dacius uh, initiated uh, what what was at that time the largest persecution to date, and uh, and he required people, he required everyone uh, to give to 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 make sacrifice to the gods of um, of the Roman pantheon. Um, uh, of course, Christians had to refuse. Uh, simultaneously, uh, simultaneously with this, uh, there there came a plague <laughs> on the empire, uh, and it really did mow down a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people were dying at the time. There were some other things going on too. There was uh, a kind of drastic climate change, and there was a famine as a result of the climate change. All of these disasters were hitting the empire simultaneously, and Dacius was blaming them on the Christians because the Christians were not honoring the Roman gods. Uh, uh, so. So uh, during this time, uh, what happened was a lot of the pagan families would abandon their sick family members. Um, and, uh, and what we see is that the Christian bishops urged the doctors in their congregations to take care of everyone without discrimination. Mm-hmm. So what we see is Christian doctors emerging at that time, working together and giving medical care even to their persecutors even to the pagans. They were extending medical care that way. Um, so a lot of things are happening. They're, they're founding what would become known as the hospital. They're creating the conditions for future, future medical research, right? Because for the first time, doctors are working together, working on the same patients over an extended period of time. All those things that I said happen naturally in hospitals, and, and they can actually make progress in medicine as a result because they're working together in this cooperative way with Christian dispositions. This was the birth of the hospital, and it's a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, it is. And, and the, imagine uh, that you are a, a pagan official, a Roman imperial official, who have, you have dedicated your life to persecuting these people, and the very people that uh, you have been trying to put to death with uh, great uh, skill and enthusiasm are the very ones who who heal your own family. It, it, yes. The impact that this must have had, uh, it's almost impossible to imagine the conversations that were being held uh, among Roman officials. Oh, yes. We have extensive information from within Christianity. Uh, two wonderful, well, actually more than two, but letters from two wonderful bishops. One is uh, Dionysius of Alexandria, yes. Dionysius the Great, who is writing about these things as they're taking place and immediately afterward. The other one is Cyprian of Carthage in North Africa. And again, he's writing about these things as they're taking place. So you know that they're probably not, not making things up. They're not exaggerating, because they're writing to the very people who are living through them, people who could, who could contradict them if, if, uh, if, they, if they strayed from the truth. Um, so, so those are remarkable testaments. But even more remarkable than that, we find these testimonies from... Um, from outside the fold, you know, uh, great physicians like Galen, mm-hmm. pagan physicians who are known uh, known from uh, from antiquity uh, and were celebrities in their own time, pay 
pay homage to the Christian doctors because of their courage, because because they were the ones who remained with the sick even when um, even when the, the plague was coming, because because once the plague hit your town, the first people to leave were usually the physicians, because the physicians knew what those symptoms added up to, and they knew that there was nothing they could do to stop it, and they knew that it was it it, it would attack their families if they stayed in place. Mm-hmm. So like, shifting gears, let's go to Africa, because mm-hmm. all of this transformation was happening uh, as a result of the work of just average Christians. I always go back to that uh, great line about uh, they invite us into their homes but never into their beds and and, and similar things like that. In Africa, there was this phenomenal story that was developing. I mean, we forget how, how great the civilization of imperial life was in Africa at the time of this transformation of the Christians. Uh, talk about that. What happened in Africa? Because it's an underreported story. Oh, it absolutely is. And, and one thing I'll just point out is so many of the examples that you and I have been talking about over the last two segments are examples from Africa. Right. You know, we are talking about Cyprian of Carthage. We're talking about uh, Dionysius of Alexandria. They're operating in, in Africa at this time. We, we never stopped to think, it seems, that, that Africa was, uh, was very important in early Christian history. And we're talking about the lands that are uh, today occupied by, by Libya, uh, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan, Egypt. All of these places were evangelized very early on and were influential in the development of the faith in its earliest centuries. Um, uh, you know, great names from that period uh, are Tertullian, Cyprian, Arnobius, Augustine, Lactantius. Uh, you know, these are these are 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 the giants of all time. And if, and if the only Christian to have emerged from Africa uh, were Augustine, we would still owe everything to African Christianity <laughs> because he's just one of yes. one of the the two or three greatest saints in all of history. One of the most influential of the great Christian cities was Alexandria. Oh, my. The the school of theology alone. Oh, yes. You know, Alexandria was the intellectual capital of the empire for a couple hundred years before before Christianity arrived, before the the public life of our Lord. Um, Alexandria was established as as an intellectual center. It it had the libraries, it had the the universities, it had the, um, you know, the the great institutions of that time. The Library of Alexandria was the greatest in the world by far. It was renowned. It was legendary. And there were so many other wonders in Alexandria, wonders of the world, like the um, the, the lighthouse, you know, it was known for its its uh, its physical light and intellectual light, uh, and then Christianity comes on the scene, and it it really does inherit that um, that aspect of Alexandria. It brings it to full flourishing, I should say. That that under Christianity, Alexandria became more perfectly what it always had been, and and from very early on, we see the names Pantanus, who founded the school in Alexandria, Clement of Alexandria, who was one of the great teachers in the 100s. Uh, once we get into the 3rd century, uh, you know, we have the giant origin of Alexandria, who was the first great biblical scholar, made the first critical edition of the Bible in the in the 3rd century. Uh, 
and uh, and and after that, it, it, they're, they're almost too numerous to mention. You know, the, the Athanasius the Great uh, was was bishop of Alexandria. Alexander, of course, of Alexandria was his yes. predecessor. Cyril of Alexandria dominated the history of the next century. So so there are all these great figures of 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 the Catholic Church, of the whole Church, uh, emerging out of Africa. You know, these are the great names. And, and, and really, I'm only telling the intellectuals. Uh, there are also the monks who lived in the desert and had kind of crazy lives, but also taught the world the, the, um, the, the, the technique of contemplation, the art of contemplation, and made the world want to take it up. You know, Anthony of Egypt and... Um, and so many others, Didymus the Blind. All of this was taking place in Christian Egypt. That's right. And and names like Mauritania, Numidia, uh, and Aegyptus. This was a, a zenith of Christian life in so many ways that was lost. And I want to pick up on that uh, when we come back from the break. This is Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Matthew Bunsen filling in for Al today, continuing my conversation with Mike Aquilina about the early church, medicine, and the church in Africa. Don't go anywhere. Thanks so much for staying with me this hour. My guest has been Mike Aquilina, and we have been talking about uh, early Christianity, the early church, uh, first with the invention of medicine. And we're going to continue our conversation now about uh, the church in Africa. And Mike has a new book out, Africa and the Early Church, The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity. And Mike, when we went to the break uh, just a few minutes ago, it was mentioning the significance of Christian civilization in North Africa. Can you give an estimate how many dioceses existed in North Africa at the time of the Arab invasions in the 7th century? I don't know, but they were able to have regular synods with hundreds of bishops um, attending. So I don't know how many of those were, were uh, leaders of their sees and how many were, were auxiliaries or core bishops, but they were there at, at these synods uh, every year or every couple of years, uh, and, and they were there in great numbers. Um, what's, what's interesting to me, Matthew, is uh, the influence that the African church had on the church in Europe, especially the church in Italy, the church, the church of Rome, really. You know, we think of ourselves as Latin Rite Christians, and we think of ourselves as Roman Catholics, but it was African culture that was shaping the literary culture in Rome in the, se- in the third century and the fourth century. And African Christian culture especially was influential in the church. There were, there were African popes like Pope Victor early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, were, there was also a great, um, a, a great influence in terms of liturgy. Uh, it, 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 it's likely that the Latin liturgy was, was practiced in North Africa for a hundred years at least before um, before it reached before it reached Italy before it reached Rome, the the liturgy in Rome was generally offered in Greek, and it, it changed only with great difficulty because we don't like to change our liturgy. Nobody does. <laughs> Nobody um, does. And, uh, and it changed eventually to Latin. But again, we're thinking of ourselves as Latin right. We're thinking of ourselves as Roman Catholic. But really, we owe a debt. Um, for, for the influence of the African Church, a lot of the other things that were done to change the liturgy eventually in the time of the Fathers began in Africa. Africa was really a trendsetter in terms of liturgy. The things that they did 
within the, you know for in the context of the mass tended to make their way to rome uh, and and of course this the precedent was there even before christianity there was a great literary renaissance that went on in carthage in north africa um in in the first century second century and great authors uh, arose at that time, Terence the playwright, Apuleius the novelist, and many, many, many legal scholars. Uh, all of these were influential on, on, on the mainland, as, as, as we would call it. Um, but the influence really did run from the provinces to the capital rather than from the capital to the provinces. Yeah. And it was uh, a beautiful set of provinces, too, wasn't it? I mean, there. We, we have so many of the archaeological remains. Uh, Carthage is something of an exception because of what the Romans did to it. Uh, but Roman Carthage itself really flourished. Uh, but then yeah. when we look at uh, what's left of Christian Roman civilization, impacted as it was by the Byzantines, impacted as well by the Vandals who eventually also conquered whole stretches of it. But it's easy to forget the level of culture and civilization that was flourishing uh, in Christian Roman Africa, yes, yes, and and the the names you know to say it all you know Tertullian, Cyprian, Augustine, and these are the giants. Uh, we would not have ideas like like freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. These really originated with Tertullian, the North African. And uh, when Thomas Jefferson and his good friends were, uh, were, were working at the American founding in the 18th century, they were reading Tertullian in Latin in order to develop their ideas of freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. Uh, Tertullian first proposed these at the end of the 100s. They were developed further on in the next, um, in the next um, century uh, by Lactantius, another North African. So these ideas that we have and that we cherish really originate in North Africa, as so many good things do. Yeah, so then we had uh, the, the Byzantines uh, as the successor state to Rome. Uh, we had, obviously, this was a dedicatedly Christian civilization, uh, mm -hmm. but it also grew over time, weak. Uh, you can see that charting from uh, the, the time of Justinian and the time of Belisarius all the way down to what befell North Africa, the Roman Africa, with the invasion, the Arab invasions in the, the middle to late 7th century. Talk about yes. how devastating that was and what followed those invasions. Well, it, it, was, it was that way all through the Middle East. All of these lands in, um, in, in, in what we call Eurasia and, uh, and, and North Africa, all these lands that we today call the Middle East, they were, they were Christian lands. They were, they were almost entirely Christian lands. There were small populations of Jews. There were pockets of paganism, but they were very tiny. Very few people held on to the old Roman religion or the old Greek religion. Um, but Christianity um, was, was, was everywhere in these countries. It was the civilization. Uh, and then it wasn't. It, it seems to be that sudden. It was over the course of a century, of course. That was a long time ago. And when we look at it uh, in retrospect, it seems to have happened so suddenly that the Arab invaders came, and then their invasion became a religious matter with Muhammad, and, uh, and, uh, and, and the countries just fell one after another. Uh, there, were, there were all kinds of disincentives to practice your faith. And, uh, and many, people, many people just stopped practicing the Christian faith or practiced it secretly. Um, 
But that too uh, took many centuries, didn't it? I mean, the, the, the Crusaders, for example, when they arrived, uh, were many surprised at uh, the size of the Christian population that had somehow endured all of those centuries of yeah. the jizya, the, the, the tax, and uh, the, the dimmi, the, the legal disabilities that Christians had. So it's, it's not as though, and I think this is important to remember too, it's not as though Christianity suddenly just disappeared overnight. No, 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 uh, no, no. It was there because because it had deep roots, as I said before, and yeah. it it really was. Uh, there was a pride about it, in a sense, because because uh, the people there had a sense of um, of of their own Christian past. Uh, I, I was reading a, an article by a, an archaeologist who was working in Syria um, in uh, in in the late twentieth century, and she said that she found while she was there that uh, that the local population in Syria. Syria, where the disciples were first called Christian, uh, they, they had no sense of their Christian past because it wasn't taught in the public schools. A very different version of history was taught in the public schools, and they just lost their sense of it over generations. So, um, so it held on for a long time in North Africa. It's a little bit harder to make it hold on today, and that, su- that surprised me when I read it um, because we, we think we have greater access to information. We think <laughs> right. we're better educated, but we can be a lot more ignorant today than people were in the 7th century or 9th century or 11th century. I want to touch on one of the most interesting parts of your book, though, and that is uh, the, the section on the Davidic Kingdom of the South, where you talk about the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the, the Queen of Sheba, the Ethiopian eunuch, and the first bishop of Ethiopia, because that, too, is, uh, as, as the title of this says, the almost forgotten uh, history. Yeah. The importance of Christianity for a country like Ethiopia. Oh yes. Well, well. I mean, think about the importance of Judaism for a country like Ethiopia. There, there have been Ethiopian, there have been Jews in Ethiopia um, for for centuries. Obviously, uh, before before Jesus. Um, when we when we think about the Queen of Sheba, she's the queen who comes from the south, and. Uh, and she goes to Jerusalem just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, according to tradition, she bears a child by Solomon, and she goes back to her land uh, and, and, and begins a, a Davidic line there in Ethiopia. Now, according to their, their legends, uh, that, that, that child went back to Jerusalem and carted off the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and it remains in Ethiopia to this day. Um, now, you can dispute that all you want. What you can't dispute is the influence of Second Temple Judaism, of First Temple Judaism, in Ethiopia. There are all these temple traditions that are preserved in the books that, that they keep with the Christian scriptures, like the Book of Enoch, for example, which is, which is canonical for them. It's not canonical uh, for Catholics. Um, and, and they keep alive these memories and these traditions. There's, there's a replica of the Ar- Ark of the Covenant in every Christian church. Uh, mm-hmm. These churches are magnificent. They've dated them now to the early 4th century, and they, uh, they're, they're carved out of, out of a single rock. Now, now think of that, a, a massive church uh, carved out of a single rock. So there was a Christian culture, there was a, a Christian civilization there that grew organically out of a Jewish civilization. When we get to the New Testament, we find that on the first Pentecost, you know, this is my favorite holiday we're approaching now, Pentecost. Yes. But there, it, it, Pentecost was a very Catholic event. There were people in the city for the Feast of Pentecost, um, from, from all the corners of the earth, and many of the places that are mentioned are places in Africa. You know, people came there uh, for the festival, and they celebrated the festival as Jews in Jerusalem. 
And then later on in the Acts of the Apostles, we find this Ethiopian eunuch, who's a court official, and he he uh, he. He, he, he discourses with, um, with, with Philip. He's converted to Christianity. He seeks baptism. Surely he brought the faith back, as did those first, those first initiates who were there on the first Pentecost. Surely these first Christians, these early Christians, brought the faith back to Ethiopia, where it found at least some hearers where it found at least some people who would, who would take it to heart. We don't have documentary records of this, but I think it's a good bet. And to consider what the, the Christian community, the, the, the Coptic Christians who live in particular in Egypt, what the mm-hmm. Christians in Ethiopia uh, have endured for so many centuries, uh, they are willing to die for the faith. We recently yeah. had the 21 Coptic martyrs. Standing in such beautiful tradition, I know you're one of the great experts on the martyrs of the early church, and yet that the, the importance of martyrdom continues today, and the witness, which is a very at the very heart of what martyr means. Yes, yes, and they see themselves very much in the tradition of those early martyrs. You know, that's where they learned it. It's it's been the way of their life in those countries for century after century after century, and yet they've endured for all those centuries. That's a remarkable thing. Yeah. Well, I, in the, just the, the brief amount of time we have left, I want to touch on uh, a saint and a doctor of the church whose feast day is today, uh, and that is Bede, or the Venerable Bede, or Bede the Venerable. Uh, first, uh, the question I'm often asked is, if he's venerable, how is he a saint? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just the adjective. People <laughs> exactly. Use, you know, because every saint is venerable. We may <laughs> venerate them. We may honor them in this way. And he was he was honored by that name from very early on. It's tradition to call him venerable, you know, even though he's he's Saint Bede. We have a Saint Bede's Church here in the city of Pittsburgh, um, but I always refer to him as as one of the greatest Christian voices rarely read, because yes. Bede has had the misfortune to live in a time that doesn't fit any of the anthologies. He's too late to be one of the Church Fathers, so he's not in the patristic collections. And he's too early to be medieval, so he's not in any of the medieval collections. And I think he's too often forgotten as a Christian thinker, as a theologian, and as a historian. But he's a remarkable guy. He was also a reformer in his time, and, um, and he did great things. Uh, I, I, I get excited about Bede because a great book about him came out last year called Bede the Theologian by John Baquette. And and it's just a wonderful book, but it it talks at length about him as as a reformer, uh, and um, and 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 it quotes from one of his letters here. For example, it is reported of some bishops that they have no men of true religion or self control around them, but instead are surrounded by those who give themselves up to laughter, jokes, storytelling, eating, drinking, and other seductions of the soft life. Well, proving so once again, some things never change. <laughs> <laughs> whenever we're tempted to get anxious, think of Bede and invoke him. Amen. Well, Mike, thanks so much. It's been a great hour. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for having me, Matthew.